You're making your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to read that text in just a moment. This is a, just a great time of year, isn't it? It's time to be with family and time to reflect. There's so many good things happening all at once. We spend time with friends. A lot of times we travel and we get to reaffirm our love to those whom we've known in the past. And we get to see again. Uh, it's just a blessing to be God's people. And I, I just, in moments like these, when I'm able to travel and be somewhere and see others, uh, it's just highlighted in my mind God's wisdom in forming His people in the way that He did so that as we spend time together and we grow in our faith and we move from place to place, uh, we just have these wonderful relationships that we've built over time. Uh, one of the first things that happened this morning when I walked in is ran into a dear friend that I've known for over 20 years. It's just such a blessing um, to have those sorts of things happen to us um, and just the joy of being together. There's some wonderful people here this morning that mean a lot to me, uh, and I live in Texas. I showed up here, and I see these people, and it's just a, just a wonderful thing to be part of God's family. And so, uh, it's good to be together and open the Word of God together, and this morning I want to spend some time talking about love, um, and this is nothing new to you. Many of you have read 1 Corinthians 13 many times, but I, I do want to approach this uh, maybe in a way that's sort of a, a bit of reflection relating to the world that we live in, and I, I will propose to you that we are in a philosophical war in our culture, and I want to approach this text from this standpoint in terms of thinking as we, you know, go into a new year and we're thinking about how we're going to approach this year uh, mentally, uh, psychologically, spiritually, how are we going to encounter and live in this world that really twists and warps so many things, including the idea of love, how are we going to face that? And part of that is just dealing in truth with the things that God has revealed to us, not allowing the world to hijack things that are good and pure and holy, but coming to a good understanding of things like what is love? Because God has revealed it to us very plainly, and that's the direction I want to go this morning. And I may do something very similar um, tonight. I have a few ideas, revelation. I haven't even decided what I'm preaching on tonight, um, but I have a couple good ideas. One of them really sort of relates to what Adam was covering this morning and the idea of joy and and some of that, and, and so I, I want to, sh- but all shapes around this idea that I think is just becoming more and more important, and that is the battles that we're facing and the war that we're facing in culture that sometimes is just unseen on the philosophical level. So with that in mind, I want to read 1 Corinthians 13, and I want to work through this text, and I think it'll become clear what I'm getting at um, in terms of, of understanding the idea of love. This is what Paul says, beginning in verse 1, 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And I have, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. 
As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let me just first set the context that Paul is dealing with here as he's writing to these brethren in Corinth. He is going to go on to talk about, in the very next chapter, kind of this, this difference between prophecy and speaking in tongues. And they are very pulled toward this idea of tongue speaking, of spiritual gifts, working miracles. Paul is going to address that because that's a concern that they have. In the middle of that, he's talked a little bit about it in chapter 12, and he's talking about their oneness and how they're all members of the same body and they should be working together, and he wants to show them a more excellent way, he says at the end of chapter 12. And of course, that way is understanding love, which is what we're about to talk about. And then he goes into chapter 14 following that, then talking about the ideas re- relating to speaking in tongues and prophecy and which one is better and why it's better and when they're needed. And so that's really the context, for example, of why he says, if I speak in tongues, uh, but I have not love, the first section, or if I have prophetic powers, this all relates to where he's going in the letter. He's setting up what he's about to do. But as I mentioned earlier, for our purposes, what I want us to think about is how in our culture we've taken this word love, kind of generally speaking, it's, it's a big word that's used lots of different ways and really sort of sapped of its meaning many times in our culture because we, now we have things like love is love, right? How often do we hear that said, which what does that even mean? Uh, I don't know. Actually, I think it has no meaning. Essentially what it means is that I can do whatever I want and you should accept it because that's who I am. Now, there's a whole philosophical aspect to this that I'm not even going to get into this morning, but the, the importance that we feel of like self-expression and figuring out who we are and knowing our identity and all this sort of thing, which is very modern philosophically. Um, this is not the way, for example, people 150 years ago would have thought. This is a very modern construct that I need to like go find myself and all these kinds of things. And I may have more to say about that tonight. But one reason I wanted us to read 2 Corinthians 10 is just the idea of what Paul recognizes there. Really, there's, there's no difference. That the wars and the battles that we're facing are not flesh and blood. They are on the philosophical level. They're taking down empty arguments, empty philosophy, these concepts of men that warp truth. So we need to talk about some things that relate to the idea of love. And what love actually is. And so I want to break down some things in this text and talk about them, and I think in ways that maybe are helpful for us, for those who are within the body of Christ, but also in how we interact with the world around it, around us. The first of these, and I'm going to go a little bit out of order, so I'm going to jump to verse 3, but then we'll go back, so I'll just let you know that so you can follow me, is kind of the way we conceptualize the value of love and the importance of love. And maybe this is something that is helpful for our people, for God's people, and the way we think about how we live and the things that we do. And so the first thing we need to understand about love is that love determines the worth of my works, the value of my works. Now, that may seem a little uncomfortable for many of us, right, because we've, we've been taught all the good things that we should be doing. But Paul very plainly says here that you can do all of that, and if it's not done in love, it doesn't really mean anything. 
Right, so verse 3, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, those are some pretty big things, right? I mean, how many times have we talked about Jesus telling the rich man, go and give all your goods to the poor and then come and follow me, and then we kind of writhe over our own wealth and how we're going to deal with that, you know, and this kind of wrestling that we face with how wealthy we are in this country and that we should, you know, probably be doing more. This is a big deal. Someone who goes and gives away everything that they have, that's no small feat. Right? Someone who's so committed to an idea or a concept that they would be a martyr. They would give their body to be burned. And what Paul says is that if you don't do it in love, it gains you nothing. It, it has absolutely no value whatsoever. So from a philanthropic standpoint, I mean, if I, I'm just a, a really giving person, but I want to show you how this works and how it could be done in a way that's not loving, that has no value— Maybe it is I'm very wealthy, and I, I give people lots of money, I do lots of things, but if I'm actually doing it so that people notice me, right, or so that I receive some sort of glory or attention, that's sort of the idea Paul's talking about here, right? You're just a clanging symbol. You're just making a lot of noise. This is not doing anything that's actually valuable for yourself. Now, it can still help people, and that's, that's great, and people may never know your motives, and they may be benefited in a physical way in this life, and, and that's wonderful. But what Paul's talking about here really is attitude, because he's dealing with the Corinthian brethren and their attitude about things like spiritual gifts and their interactions with each other and how they're interacting in the world. And so even giving great gifts, right, great in the sense of the way men view them, actually has no real value if it's not done in love. Giving your life, but doing it for selfish glory, for example, right? For some cause that's not the cause of the kingdom or for the cause of God, doing it to receive credit, to receive praise of men. And this may seem crazy, but these sorts of things have happened throughout history. All of it's worthless. It doesn't mean anything unless it is actually done for the right purposes or in the right way. Now, let me, let me give you an illustration. I think maybe we'll bring this down to real life for many of us, right? So it, many of us are married. So if a spouse was to do all sorts of amazing and helpful things for their spouse, we would think that's great, right? They're doing a lot of good things. But what if they do all those things and then hold it over their head for days and days and days? All the things they've done for them. What if they continually bring up all the great works they've done to help their spouse and they're reminding them of, of how great they've been and how much they've helped them? I think we can sort of see how this can get out of alignment and how as great as something may be, it really actually doesn't have much value if it's done for the wrong reason. Or maybe the other side of that, right? The child who goes out in the, in the yard to play and comes back with that little flower from mommy. You know, how much is that flower worth? I mean, you can't sell it anywhere. It has no tradable value. But I think every single one of us understands when something like that, that happens, that's where we go, oh, you know, we have that sense of understanding of how valuable that actually is, that that little child is demonstrating the pure love they have for their mother. 
And so it's not the value, the monetary wealth, or how big a thing is. That's not really what actually matters. It's that love stands beneath it. It's that love is the substance of this. And so love is not judged by the greatness of the action. The greatness of the action is judged by the love that stands below it, or the foundation of it. I, I don't know if you remember, I, I think I was probably in Houston when I saw this, but have you all seen the signs? that They have the billboards up here, it's like, good without God. Y'all see those? I don't know if any of y'all ever saw them. It was this thing that went around for a little while. It was like Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and some others. I preached this whole sermon on it one time. Um, but this whole idea that you, know, you don't need God to be good. And so certain people, these wealthy people, had made this commitment to give all of their wealth to whatever cause. You know, there, it was different ones. Um, or a lot of their wealth. Didn't have to be all of it. And so the whole point supposedly was all these people, they're, they're good without God. They don't need God to be good. Now we could go down another line of reasoning here. How do you even define good and what is good? And if there is no God, how do you have good and how do you have evil? Again, a subject for another time. But do you see how doing great big things may not actually matter? You know, they're praising this idea that you can be so philanthropic. You can give lots of stuff, and you don't need God to do this, but their motives are all wrong. Everything is off about that. And this is the very sort of thing that Paul's talking about here. Yeah, you can do great things. You can do mighty works. But if it's not based in love, it doesn't really mean very much. Maybe this is actually even more painful for us to hear. And I mean that like within our culture and the way we think about things. And that is that Paul really says that we're actually defined by our love. Did you catch that in the reading? We're kind of getting really fine here with what we're reading in these first couple verses. But as I was reading through this, this is a while ago now, I just I noticed in terms of our culture and the way that we think, we're really interested in who we are and defining ourselves and, and all of that. But Paul says this to people who are very concerned with tongue speaking and prophetic powers and all of that. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, and notice all the things he mentions here and to the extent to which he mentions them. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. I mean, can you imagine if you went up to somebody and said, you are nothing? That is a strong statement. They'd probably be deeply offended, and maybe rightfully so, if we said, you are nothing. Of course they aren't nothing in the eyes of God. We all have value as those who are created in His image. But when our perspective is off, as Paul's trying to help them understand here, and we think these things that are are valuable, are important, but the priorities are out of whack, and they're not done in love. When we live that sort of life, he's saying, hey, you're nothing. This amounts to nothing. I am nothing. If I do all of these amazing things, and yet it's not based in love, who I am is not the right kind of person. I, I hesitate to go down this road, but I'm going to do it anyway. In our culture, uh, we try to find purpose and meaning in life through really self-expression, through seeking identity, through labels. And in most recent years, it's been things like gender expression and orientation. And, but it has lasted long before just the, the past 15 or so years. It's something that's been long in the works well before that. 
But, but just think about how this works if we disrupt somebody's identity. If you attack the way somebody views about themselves, I mean, that is seen as basically the worst thing you could do, to deny somebody's view of self. And that's essentially what Paul is doing here. They're so concerned about who they are and the things that they do, and he says, hey, it doesn't matter if you're not doing this in love. So let's talk about some things that relate to us. Maybe things we think of that are are really important. I, I don't know why this is always the case, but it seems to be this way, that that public things like public worship, like preaching or teaching or song leading, those sorts of things seem to get like a lot of attention. You know, like that guy, he, he grew up and he became a preacher. Or uh, one time, one place I lived, uh, one guy introduced himself to people as a song leader. You know, it was like this really big deal. And so sometimes we make a really big deal about these public things. And, and I think they're valuable and I think they're important and we, and we need to do them. Uh, maybe sometimes they get a little too much attention and seeking our identity through public service. I just want to say this. I know some Christians, some Christian men, because that's sort of the realm we're talking about here, who are exceptional Christian men who hardly ever get up and do anything publicly. You know, their identity is not caught up in, in the idea that they have to come stand up in a pulpit and lead a song or teach or preach. Those are all great things, and I, I value them clearly because I, I do some of them. But do you see where the problem can be in some of that if that becomes the the metric of faith? Will we hold someone up simply because they get up in a place like this? First of all, just just think about the fact that if we're following Scripture, you're just ruling out half of the human race from how you measure faithfulness. And I I have a problem with that. Or maybe on, on our side, men, if we're so worried that, you know, I haven't got to lead singing, or I haven't been able to teach a class, or I haven't, you see sort of the problem here is it's very focused on I. And what we're doing here, we went on to 1 Corinthians 14, it's actually really about building up and encouraging the body. It's not about what I get to do. It's not about me. It's, it's about what's happening as a group. And, and I think in some ways, there, I'm sure there are other groups that struggle with this, but within our fellowship, this is a pretty big thing. Like, everyone should be able to do everything. We sort of have this mentality. And that's wonderful that we can do that sort of thing, and we have opportunities for everybody. But sometimes we just have to understand it's really not about me and what I can do. It's about what's needed in the congregation. This is actually the point in 1 Corinthians 12. Not everybody has the same function. We are all individually members of the body, and we work together to be a body that praises the Lord, that honors Him, that encourages and uplifts each other. And so when we get caught up in the wrong sorts of things and we begin to identify ourselves in the wrong sorts of ways, it actually creates problems. Now, we notice those in the world, as I referenced a few minutes ago, right, with the gender stuff and the orientation stuff. We see the problem with that becoming an identity issue, but it's a little harder sometimes when we misplace our identities, even within the body, about what is most important. And actually, Paul, in the book of Romans, is actually spending the whole letter dealing with this concept. Right? They find their identity in the law rather than in Christ, and that's the problem that he's dealing with. And so when we find our identity in, in a variety of, of things that really aren't Christ, that can be a problem. Even to the point that Paul's saying here some pretty strong things like, 
if you have all knowledge and all faith, I, mean, I don't think any of us would discount the importance of knowledge and faith. Faith so as to remove mountains. You know, the kind of faith that can stand for truth. The kind of faith that proclaims what is right and wrong. But yet, if you don't have love, he says, you're nothing. Maybe the prophetic powers, the ability to see social and cultural and spiritual trends and understand the dangers of them. Having a vast knowledge of the world and how it works. I mean, we have, we have people who can do those sorts of things. People who have strong faith, confidence, despite the train wreck in the world around us, that they're going to stand for truth at all times. I mean, those are valuable things, but what if it's not done in love at all? What if it's done in a spirit of partyism? Or for a desire to show everybody I'm right? Whatever it's done in a, in a desire to glorify myself and lift myself up rather than to work in the kingdom and to glorify God. These are the sorts of things Paul's worried about that he's talking about here. So, for example, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, get some of the context here, he's about to go into a, a pretty lengthy discussion about eating meat sacrificed to idols. Here's what he says about this. So, in verse 1, he says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up but love builds up. See how Paul's actually setting up where he's going here in a few chapters? If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak, is defiled. Now, I want us to understand what's happening here. Paul is not talking about non-believers. He is talking about people within their body who still struggle with the idea of idolatry. Right? And their consciences are seared when they potentially see a brother in Christ who's eating meat sacrificed to an idol, and they still have this struggle with thinking that idols are real, that there are these other gods and you shouldn't be eating this meat sacrificed to an idol. So I just want us to understand, idolatry is a really big deal, and Paul is certainly against it. But what he's telling some of these brethren here is, be careful about the way you treat these other brethren. Your knowledge can make you arrogant. And you should act in a way that is loving and caring and concerning. You shouldn't say, hey, we know there's no idols. I'm eating this meat. Everybody knows there's no other gods. And now this person is bothered because they come from a whole background of idolatry. And they're struggling with this still, even though they have decided that Jesus Christ is Lord and they want to follow him. Now, some of the issues we deal with in modern times, I'm not going to go into detail about them, but I'll just ask you, are they as serious as idolatry? And how do we interact maybe with a brother or sister who's struggling with some of those? So this is a big deal. Love is extremely important in how we handle even really critical issues, matters of truth. I'm, I think that the idea of there being one God is a really important matter of truth, and that's what Paul's dealing with in 1 Corinthians 8. And yet he's telling them to be careful about the arrogance with which they carry their knowledge. 
and how they interact with people who may not yet be to the place that they are at. Okay, so then this last one I want us to understand is that God actually clearly defines love. So in a world that really struggles with this concept, this idea, we have substance within Scripture that tells us what love actually is. So the first two items really are are kind of dealing with internal issues, the way we view ourselves, the way we view others, how we interact within the body when it comes to being loving, right? Understanding that our good works, our deeds, they don't stand on their own, right? They need to be based in love or else they're, they're pointless, they're worthless, right? And then I'm defined by that. Jesus told his disciples that everyone will know you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. This is the substance of who we are. But then in understanding love and what it actually is in relationship to the world, it's pretty important to understand what God says about love. What men think about love is relatively unimportant. So, for example, my view of myself really doesn't matter if I don't align it with what God says about something. For instance, what we're talking about here with with love. What culture thinks about love really doesn't matter if it doesn't line up with what God says about love. And so this next section in 4 through 8 especially gives us a lot of great detail about love itself. It talks about things that love embraces. It talks about things that love resists. All right, so love embraces patience and kindness and truth, resilience, faith, hope, endurance, perseverance— but love resists things like envy and boasting and error and arrogance and rudeness and selfishness. So all of this is very plain within the text here. Love isn't self-centered. Right? So we're kind of hitting this, this overview of what all of this looks like and what love actually is. So if we take all of this, that love embraces some things and love resists some things, and we see some of these parallels in Scripture, like it's patient and kind, but it's not envious, it's not boastful or arrogant or rude, and we kind of see that the contrast between what is loving and what is not loving, and we understand that love isn't self-centered, but love is selfless, and then we take this and we apply it to our culture, and the way we see things in this world, I think we have some real struggles. Because the world tells us we should accept all the things that people want to do. We should embrace however someone wants to identify themselves, however somebody wants to live. All of that should be embraced. Actually, it should be celebrated. That's sort of the path we have, um, we have come to in our culture now. And this is not at all in alignment with what is told to us here about the nature of love. Now, in the midst of all of that, there is the reality that love is patient. So the way we deal with error, the way we deal with something that's wrong is not to be impatient. It's not to be unkind because that doesn't fit love. That's not what love is. And so someone who is deeply in error about how they see the world or how they see themselves, it doesn't mean now that they're subject to us being impatient toward them or unkind toward them or we can be ugly or mean. And so, for example, things on social media, how we interact with people who may think differently than us, we need to be careful about how we do that. We live in a world that really doesn't accept sin at all. Um, The greatest sin in our culture, and and just to be clear, I struggle with this, probably many of you do as well, because we we tend to flow with culture, and it's hard for us to get ourselves out of it, is I am the highest good. This is the way humanity thinks. 
So internally, when you have no standard, and you're not relying on a standard especially, the things that I think represent what is good and holy and right, and the one who disagrees with me is obviously wrong and sinful. And so that's why we see this problem, for example, on social media when, where everybody is just angry and back and forth with each other, and they think everybody else is an idiot who doesn't agree with them because they have denied their view of what is holy and good and righteous because it's what they think they are. So this is a struggle that we deal with, and how we interact with people really makes a huge difference. And it, it is sad when we are impatient and we are unkind as God's people dealing with those who are deceived, who believe error on things like love, that it can just, you know, as long as two people love each other, it's totally okay. It doesn't matter if it's an adulterous relationship. It doesn't matter if it's immorality. As long as people love each other, it's fine. That is error. That is not true. It's not according to what God says here. Love does not insist on its own way, right? Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Now, we, we can't just go along with things that are error and wrong just because somebody says it's loving to do that because that's not what love actually is. To be loving is that we speak truth. And we do it in a kind way. We do it in a careful way. We do it in a patient way. Kind of embodying all of these ideas that Paul is giving to us here in verses 4 through 8. That we bear with people. Right? That we are persistent. That we are resilient. That we don't just give up on people and things immediately. That we will endure. We'll work through something that even is hard or difficult, that is the nature of what love actually is. And again, I think we see this when we have serious relationships like marriage. We can even see it in friendship, right, where we have good friends, and we're not always happy with the decisions our friends make, or sometimes we may feel wronged by a friend, but we don't just kick them to the curb the second they do something we don't like. That's not the nature of love. And so we have to reject the concepts in the world that teach us things that are actually incorrect about what love actually looks like. So, for example, if someone doesn't enable your view of yourself, you get rid of them, right? And so we enter this huge echo chamber in our culture because anyone who doesn't agree with me and what I think of myself, I just push them to the side. That's actually extremely unhealthy. It is not beneficial to anyone, and we reject them saying they're unloving because they don't agree with what I think. That is so, so harmful. It's also very self-centered. Love isn't in the business of demanding. This is a sort of a tough one to nail down, and I, I think if I struggle with any of these in a big way, this may be the biggest one. You know, love, it says, is not irritable or resentful. Anybody else struggle with that? You know, you're tired, you've had a long day, your kids have asked you a thousand questions and you want to just rest. And so you get a little bit irritable. And that's hard to realize that's actually, that's not loving. Now, doesn't mean we can't say things that are true, like you've talked too much or those sorts of truths that may actually need to be shared with our children to teach them. But doing things like acting in passive-aggressive ways, or just being flat-out angry toward a spouse or toward a child. If I have to go around letting everybody know how frustrated I am, 
I mean, I, I think we need to see that that's actually what that's doing is it's making the world all about me. That is a form of demanding, right? That's a form of insisting on my own way, that everyone needs to cater to my feelings and my emotions and my mood. And this is exactly the sort of thing the world promotes that you should do, right? Do what makes you happy. And honestly, we kind of see the mess that that creates in the world around us when that is the message people take in and imbibe and then live out in their life. They want everyone to be loving toward them, but then they can act however they want toward other people. So we've kind of taken this hodgepodge of things because that's what Paul does here about the idea of patience and kindness and insisting on someone's own way and selflessness, selfishness, irritability, uh, irritability, resentfulness, things about truth like wrongdoing. This is all part of this picture. So what I really want us to get down to is this idea that love is inevitably tied to truth. You cannot separate those two things. And, and there's a lot, I've hopefully given you something that's worthwhile this morning and talking about the ideas of love, even in this last section about what love actually is. But I think maybe in going to the new year in our minds and meditating on the idea of love because we hear so much about it, what I really want everyone to walk away with this morning is just this reality of what Paul says here. He also says in Ephesians 4 that love is inevitably tied to truth. You cannot remove those two things from each other. They must coexist because love does not rejoice or celebrate at doing wrong, but it rejoices with the truth. And so we have to find ways to live in a world that doesn't accept that without being impatient, without being unkind, and yet still speaking the truth and love. The wise man says in Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Probably some of the most beneficial things I've ever been told in my life came from someone telling me things I didn't really want to hear. Whether it was a mentor or my spouse or a close friend, sometimes we just have to hear things we actually don't want to hear. And that's how we get better. That's how we grow. And the world isn't all that interested in that. They want someone to affirm who they are and to tell them what they are is okay and that they don't need to change. And that is just simply not in keeping with what God says is loving, is holy, is righteous. True friends speak truth to each other. The reality is enemies who want to use us for their own purposes flatter. They're the ones who tell us it's all good, do what you want to do. They want to sell you something. They have other ulterior motives. And so we have to be very careful about the way we think about something even as simple as love. And a world that has twisted and turned it all which way. Finally, Paul says love is eternal. It never ends. It never ends. All these other things that they're worried about, the prophecies and the tongue speaking and all of that, it's actually all going to go away, right? One day, we're going to be face-to-face with our Maker. And there's no need for hope anymore because it's realized. There's no need for faith at that point because it's right in front of you. It's concrete, but the love is still going to remain. That's the point he gets to here at the end. 
That's why it's the greatest. The greatest of these is love because it's going to be there forever. And one day when we are in the new heaven and a new earth and we are in the presence of God and we're there for all eternity, love will be a central part of that picture. The feelings that we have, for example, when I come in and see close friends at a place that's not even my home, those warm feelings, the feelings of love, that will be forever. We'll always have those. That's what God wants for his people, to live with him for all eternity and have an existence that is filled and dominated with true love. And so I, I hope this morning that we looked at Scripture, if everything I said wasn't very valuable, at least we read through 1 Corinthians 13 and we saw some valuable things from the text. And I hope it's encouraging to us to see the nature of what love is actually like and what love isn't like. As we continue on and we begin a new year and we begin to reflect on the things that we want to do, do in this coming year and the goals that we have, whether it's for ourselves or for our children or for a church, that we base all of these in, in truthful concepts and ideas of what God has told us. If you're not in Jesus Christ, the loving thing for me to tell you this morning is that you are in a dangerous place. I don't say that to be mean or to be ugly, it's just the truth. If you haven't accepted Jesus Christ, if you haven't been baptized for the remission of your sins and put off the old man and come up out of the water a new person living as an instrument of righteousness for Jesus, then you, you remain condemned. You stand condemned. That's what Scripture teaches us. But by the grace of God, He's provided a plan. By God's love, He sent His Son to die for the sins of all humanity so that we have an avenue. We have a way to restore the harmony that once existed in the garden before Adam and Eve sinned and broke the relationship with God and then subsequently all men sinned. But God, He loves us. He has a plan for us. And it could be this morning that it's time for you to accept this plan, to accept God's love, and to give your life to Jesus Christ. We want to help you do that. Will you come as we stand and we sing together?